What goes into making an iconic building in America? What are the stories and who are the people behind the next generation of architecture? If your work touches the real estate industry in any way, or you're just curious about what goes into one-of-a-kind cities and towns all across our country, join us on the American Building Podcast. In season two, we learn about everything from skyscrapers to single-family homes, from the famous and soon-to-be-famous designers and developers responsible for them. This season focuses particularly on the pandemic and how our buildings will change in response. Our sponsor is the iconic design firm, Michael Graves Architecture and Design. And now your host, award-winning architect turned entrepreneur, Atif Cotter, AIA. This is American Building, and I'm your host, Atif Cotter. I'm the CEO of Redist, a technology company focused on innovative public financing for real estate projects. We are recording from the historic home of Michael Graves in Princeton, New Jersey. Check out this amazing space for yourself at the Michael Graves Architecture and Design YouTube channel. Now, let's build something. Today, our guest is architect Bo Sundias. Bo is the owner of Bunch Design, the Los Angeles-based design firm he founded with his wife, Hisako Ichiki. Bunch Design's work crosses product, building, and urban scales, and has appeared in a wide array of publications, including the Los Angeles Times and Dwell Magazine. Previously, he worked at Gerde and at Roto Architects, both of those in Los Angeles. Uh, he is a graduate of Brown University and SciArc. We will be talking about his Stop Making Sense project, an accessory dwelling unit or ADU project. More broadly, we will talk about the real estate industry's relationship with innovation and how that is changing and could change in the future as well. So thank you so much for being here with us, Bo. Hi, thank you, Atif. It's wonderful to be here. Absolutely. Thank you much, so much for your time. So your path to being an architect started with, of all things, fishing. Tell <laughs> us about that. Yes, I, I grew up not in Los Angeles, but in outside of Nashville, Tennessee, on a farm, um, not a very, not a working one, but a smaller one. And, um, but it was a wonderful piece of property. And my father, who was an engineer, had this wild idea of hiring an architect. But the caveat was, is that he wanted to build the house half on land and half on water. And the architect said, fine, just so long as you sign this waiver that you'll never sue me for anything. And you assure that it won't flood. And my dad did. And so I grew up in this amazing and kind of wild house where you could sit on the floor on the carpet of the living room and open up a sliding glass door and, and, and fish from the living room. I caught a few pillows too on my back cast and uh, a few, <laughs> and I got it right. <laughs> so I feel like the home environment is one of those quintessential places for spouses to, to argue and disagree. I'm so curious about your mother's take on the, this whole production of a half land, half water home. <laughs> oh, she loved it. She loved it. Yeah. <laughs> everyone was, was very excited about it. I mean, it was so dramatic and, and, it, and it just changes your perspective on everything. I mean, that, that one room that was particularly far out into the lake, like 
the sunlight as it reflected off of the lake and hit the ceiling. Like it was this kind of miasma of, of different color and, and sunlight. And it was just always engaging and always beautiful. And, you know, when you, when a storm would come through and Tennessee gets strong storms, you know, Mm -hmm. lots of rain coming down and, and, and raindrops as big as dimes. And you can literally see the, the lake was only four acres. You could see the lake getting, you know, rising. And there was this drama of like, is today the day it's going to flood um, <laughs> as a kid, which is ex wonderfully exciting. Pending disaster is always something, mm -hmm. but it never did. And, you know, we were always, we were always good, but I think that that kind of um, excitement and tension, right. Of things that aren't supposed to belong together, you know, rubbing mm -hmm. them together, like an interest in program and, and, and context is something that I, that I always took with me. And of course I would not have become an architect had I not been living in that house. I, it was so exciting. So something that I wanted to do myself, I, Someday I hope that I have a, a property that, that I can work on that has enough room and lakes and things to work with. But until that, I'm working in a very urban mm -hmm. Los Angeles environment that, you know, so our cues are less from lakes and trees and, and pastures nearby mm -hmm. and, and more of a, you know, city environment of, of good commercial streets, palm trees, hills, power lines, all those things that make, you know, an urban experience really wonderful. So listeners, uh, in season three, we will be taking the podcast uh, on the road for part of the season and hopefully have a chance to visit uh, wonderful homes, uh, perhaps even the the one that Bo just described in Nashville. So you can look out for that uh, next season. So Bo, from there, from Nashville, you went on to Providence, to Brown, and you took classes also at neighboring the neighboring school, uh, the Rhode Island School of Design. What was college like for you and how did that set the stage for your career uh, going forward from there as an architect? Yeah, well, Providence is a great town. It's, 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 a, it's a city, but it's smaller. Mm -hmm. It's manageable. You can walk everywhere. It has an amazing history to it. Brown was an amazing place. Great people, great professors. The curriculum in that they allow you to create your own curriculum. It's really mm -hmm. a college of kind of choose your own adventure, which is very nice. It does not have an architecture program, architecture history. So, and when I went to Brown, I, I wasn't, I hadn't decided I was going to be an architect, but I was, so I majored in English lit and, um, and creative writing mm -hmm. and, then found that RISD was so close, we could take classes there. I was taking, I, I did jump into the architecture studios at RISD and took as many classes as I could. So, so I, I really enjoyed that. I realized I wanted to do architecture after school and I got my taste, which was really wonderful. But then at Brown, I was able to expand my interests in different cultures, more architectural history, writing, narrative mm -hmm. making, critical theory, just reading great books. So, Bo, out of curiosity, then, if you have a kind of a free free reign to be able to define your uh, curriculum over the four years, how does one then major in something? Is there like a, a set classes that you have to take to be an English lit major and then everything else, it's choose your own adventure? Pretty much, yeah. For English <laughs> lit, you, I mean, I, I think I had to, 
think you had to take classes from different periods of English literature. So there was kind of the Beowulf time and, mm-hmm. then, you know, the Shakespearean time and, and then a lot of different other classes that were electives. I remember one on travel writing was particularly interesting and reading about Orientalism and, um, but then, you know, which was really about, you know, your a culture sense of the exotic, you know, and them like looking outside, looking in, of course, it's very normal for them, but and it's very colonial in its, in its take on things. And that's interesting. But then there was also a lot of Bill Bryson and just kind of getting out there on the road and experiencing things. So you, you, you see how writing and visualizing things and recording it on paper changes, but then you do enough critical theory that you've read Barthes, you know, that the, mm-hmm. that the author is dead, you know, that it's really the reader's interpretation of things is really what's important. And so all of that's kind of stewing in my head as I kind of cart mm-hmm. off to architecture school and try to deploy a lot of the similar tactics. So on that note, you headed to Los Angeles to study at SciArc. And how would you compare your time that you just described out east in Providence to your time in Los Angeles? And, and tell us some about, about some of the architects that influenced you at SciArc. Yeah. Well, I had this great desire to go west. I was from the south. I'd gone north. I really wanted to go west. Um, I visited SciArc. They said that on the first day you had to build your own desk. And I thought that was just great. I mean, that that kind of choose your own adventure that I had Mm -hmm. experienced at Brown was now continuing in an even more extreme way in this Mm -hmm. school that was only 25 years old at the time, avant-garde enough that you're building your own desk. And, you know, people are literally experimenting on the building that you're studying in. You know, one of the thesis that occurred when I was there is someone in the middle of the night chopped a wall out of the building and then hung it several feet off of the ground in a, in a real do it yourself kind of deconstructivism. And, you know, they got in trouble a little bit, but then they also got <laughs> for it. And, um, you know, that was, that was great. So Cyric was a really wonderful, wonderful place. The mm-hmm. instruction was on point. It was experimental. It was thoughtful. It allowed everyone to really bring their different talents their talents were all my, the fellow students. Their talents were coming from a wide place. They weren't all coming from Ivy League schools. They were coming from all over the world, mm-hmm. from different backgrounds, and it just felt incredibly real. And that was great. My instructors encouraged us to, you know, encourage me to really look at my interest in in narrative writing and in literature to bring that into architecture and to experiment with it. Of course, the critiques were, you know, on point, but they were encouraging. And, um, and Syarch was, was a, was a really great place and, and continues to be. I met Hisako at Syarch. She's coming from Japan. She grew up outside of Tokyo in a city called Kamakura, which, uh, which I don't know if you're familiar with it, but it's about an hour and a half south of Tokyo. It's a beachside mm-hmm. town. It was the capital in the 11th century. So it has its own real kind of its own history and its own narrative. But then it also has access to, you know, this 
amazing metropolis that that is Tokyo. So I, I meet her at school, and you know she's coming with all of her interests and and, and kind of one seeing America for for this kind of new experience. Um, mm-hmm. I had an interest in in Japan. I had done an independent study project on on Japanese architecture actually when I was at, at Brown, which I did really badly, and I got a really bad grade. But sometimes these things don't matter because they take your life in a direction that's very unexpected, <laughs> and then you continue so, to develop it. So it sounds like you went from at Brown, uh, choose your own adventure in terms of classes to choose your own furniture. That's kind of the, the theme of, of the start of your, your sci-arc journey. <laughs> so I am really interested in terms of the the professors, the architects that you uh, perhaps did internships with when you were at SciArc. Tell us about some of the some of those folks. Yeah, well, at SciArc, I did a studio with Michael Rotundi and Roto mm-hmm. Architects, and I interned with them over the summers, which was which was a really great experience. And Clark Stevens, who was a principal at, at Michael's office at the time, we all worked closely on a few projects. And yeah, the, it was just a very thoughtful approach, a lot of hand drawing, which was very nice, very just considerate of things, a certain kind of ethic to architecture and building, which was nice. Certain sense of serendipity too about starting off on a direction, not necessarily knowing what the intention is, and then people kind of like find their own intention in it. Like there's there's a an interesting context to it where the context is not a forced but forced one, but rather a found or discovered one, mm-hmm. which was quite nice. Which was also a unique approach to an architecture that was common in Los Angeles at the time in the late 90s. There was a lot of residential architecture. A lot of high architecture was occurring with morphosis in these these smaller Mm -hmm. houses. It was using, you know, not a lot of high tech at the time, but, but two by four studs, drywall, glass, you know, all of these kind of typical construction materials and not necessarily expensive, but using them in really Mm -hmm. unique ways. It was transforming the spatial experience to one that people were excited by. So speaking of experiences that people are excited by, your first project as an architect wasn't your parents' house which is what famous architects like Richard Meyer and me do as our first projects. Uh, so tell us about the project that you started with and how it came about. Well, we had spoken, maybe this was the Creek project, the hotel project in Miami. Exactly. Yeah. Yes. So a friend of mine that I had met at Brown, Kenny Fields, he came from Means and he had purchased a youth hostel in Miami. This is mm-hmm. circa 2001, I suppose. So that's before this latest real estate boom where you can't buy a house in Miami with a 10-foot pole. Yeah, no, this is way before then. This was this was a very beat-up boutique. Well, no, it wasn't boutique. It was, it, was, it, was a, it was a very grungy youth hostel called the Banana Bungalow at the time. <laughs> so you can imagine, you know, this is The not things that happened there, yes. I <laughs> am. And he, he bought this and then had this vision to turn it into a boutique art hotel mm-hmm. and with a very limited budget. I believe the budget was like $300,000. For the whole hotel, not just like the front entrance. <laughs> For the whole hotel. The aspirations and the realities were completely mixed matched, but it all made sense to 24-year-olds. 
So right. it sounds like exactly anything's like possible most, when you're that young. And also, it sounds like the best uh, residential house, like home design client, the ones that have those really unrealistic expectations of everything, right? Right. But he actually, we all made it a reality, which is which is enlightening because it's a lesson in that it 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 just takes creativity. It doesn't. Mm-hmm. You don't have to overthink it. He brought some friends in from New York City. I was coming in from Los Angeles. There was this question of, well, how do we do this on such a limited budget? I think there was maybe a hundred rooms to this hotel. We did decide that we will hit maybe half of them, mm-hmm. you know, and had a great pool. It was in a great location. The bar was doing a steady business. So we would update the pool and the bar. And then how do we do the rooms and really get mm-hmm. buzz, turn this into art hotel? Well, we all came to the conclusion that we should send out RFPs to our friends who were all in these different creative worlds, artists in Los Angeles, branding folks in New York, a whole group of people say, we will give you a, give your, give us your proposal. We'll give you $500 budget and a plane ticket. And you can fly to Miami and you can do whatever you want inside this room. And so people love the idea. And so yeah. and we got a lot of really great people like Shepard Ferry was one of them. This is before his, you know, Barack Obama poster days. There was another group, the Barnstormers came out of New York. They were graffiti artists. Um, you know, they came down, literally locked themselves in the room for two days and just graffitied it. You know, they had full protective gear and they just lived in that graffitiing and eating pizza for two days. And <laughs> it was, it's just, just that intense intensity that comes with youth. And so and that mm-hmm. happened and it was so raw and we launched it at Art Basel. Mm-hmm. 2002 and it was a huge hit and yeah it was it was great but it was a complete mess you know it was nuts <laughs> he he filmed it he filmed it he had a film crew come in he wanted to submit it to sundance film festival i think okay we all thought it was gonna win it did not <laughs> you know next time yeah, <laughs> this is before HGTV, so he it was all very ahead of its time. Mm-hmm. But uh, you know, there's a there's something to just doing it and and not thinking yeah, too much about 100%. it, which was also really inspiring coming out of you know spending eight years of thinking in school and between Brown Cyark mm-hmm. and, and everyone's like, oh, you know, every move has to be so analyzed and. You know, here we were working with artists and graphics folks and publishers Mm -hmm. and branding and this group of folks where the timeline for their creativity is so short. Mm -hmm. It's great work, but it's short. It's fast. They don't have the luxury like architects do of spending years on something. And Mm -hmm. and they benefit from the fact that it can be quickly realized. You can really play out different ideas, really shape these spaces, which was great fun. So given that of the, so you had the 100, 100 rooms in the hotel, right? Mm-hmm. So you spent around $50,000 on the the artists and I guess a little bit more because the flights to so maybe like 75000 80000 What did you do with the remaining 200000 on the project? Like broadly speaking, what was going on? A lot went into the bar. Um, got <laughs> it. The bar was nice, nice wood countertops. The pool got refinished. You know, the rooms got patched and painted. I mean, the reviews on Yelp at the time were either 
I love this place. It's the greatest experience of my life or it's a total dump. I mean, it was, it was <laughs> very opinions were, were all over the place, you know, and if you, you got it and you liked it, great. And if you didn't then go to the Sagamore, you know, oddly the Sagamore yeah. opened up that same year, which was a very nice boutique hotel um, with, mm-hmm. you know, with like uh, great art in it, Lichtensteins and, you know, Warhols, you know, and, but then the Miami Herald uh, called the Creek, the best uh, boutique art hotel of that year. So we felt quite vindicated. We had captured people's imagination and maybe even, a even Miami's uh, image of itself, at least circa 2000. Later on, you know, he, he sold it to a developer and, and, and then it, I believe it was destroyed in a hurricane, which seemed fitting to all of us. Quite frankly, we all thought that was a good end (laughs) to the project. (laughs) A very dramatic process and a dramatic conclusion. It had a short life and then then that was that. But I also fell in love with the hotel program. You know, it was Mm -hmm. like a lot of the labor was done by the youth hostelers themselves, which was crazy. Mm -hmm. There is such a low budget, you know, like one, like, so for free rent, there was this Mason from Germany and like he did this great veneer to the bar and you mm-hmm. know the we had hostlers painting the place and doing different work and it was it was quite an experience i feel like the thing that was missing from that sundance film festival submission was the 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 last part which would have been the destruction of the hotel with the hurricane i feel if that was in the movie complete game changer it was an interesting yeah it i'm sure special effects my connections in Los Angeles, we could put that together nowadays if we wanted to revisit that. So speaking of uh, Los Angeles, let's talk about the area, the neighborhood, and the site for the Stop Making Sense Accessory Dwelling Unit. So for short, that's the SMS ADU. Yeah. So, I mean, you touched on the name, mm-hmm. which was very intentional. So our practice, Bunch Design, I'll step back for a second. Bunch Design, we've been um, we've been in business for since about 2008 after working at Jerdy and Roto and Hisako worked for mm-hmm. um, the artist Doug Aitken for several years. And I don't know if you're familiar with Doug's work, but he does a lot of installations. It's very mm-hmm. site-specific, a lot of video um, installations, moving, kinetic, happening, music videos, he did another project where he pulled his house apart. And when he walked up the steps, it recorded a kind of percussive beat to it as he went up the stairs. So the, the houses are performative. There's a bit of Gordon Matta Clark in it. it. Just makes you think about your environment. So that's where she's coming mm-hmm. from as well as architecture. And, and so, and we formed this office bunch design, which is named after our interest in collaboration and, and just kind of getting out there, working with clients, working with different folks. And, um, but we were always working on projects that were smaller commercial projects or smaller residential projects, mm-hmm. projects for, for friends, essentially who had scraped enough money together to, to buy a lot in LA. This is, you know, early two thousands or, right after the crash in like 2013, 12, you know, after the great recession. Mm-hmm. And so still 
people are finding weird triangular lots or strange flag lots. And they're saying, how Mm -hmm. do I do this? So the entitlements on these lots are very tricky. The budgets are tight and it's just coming with a lot of, a lot of context. And so they're asking Mm -hmm. us for it. So that's our background. We're working on these, these unusual lots, which is exciting for us. Isako's from Japan, Japanese Mm -hmm. residential architectures full of these wonderful flag lots and maximizing small spaces. And they've got these wonderful narratives attached to it. And Mm -hmm. they're so inspiring with how they deal with their context. And then also all the opportunities and constraints that come with it. So that was, that's our practice. And we're still doing that instead of building, you know, $10 million houses in Malibu, we're working on, home renovations for kind of normal folks, a lot of first time home mm-hmm. owners or first time people dealing with architects. And because we had done some work on our own property, we knew the fears that come with like thinking you're wealthy because you've got a hundred thousand dollars and then just like rapidly watching that diminish to zero. You know, it's, it's, there's a real sense of vertigo as that happens. Mm-hmm. It's terrifying. You know, and like us too, like we did all of that just as we're having children too. A lot of homeowners decide to oh, like you went all in <laughs> just as they are pregnant, which we did. So we get it. And so po- folks approach us and we like helping them out. And when they say that their budget's tight, like we really, we try to appreciate it and mm-hmm. make the most of it. And so we've been working on these small houses in people's backyards additions. And when the accessory dwelling unit law occurred in California in 2017, it really opened up Mm -hmm. an avenue towards kind of making this our practice of doing incredibly well thought out, well-designed houses Mm -hmm. on flat land in people's backyards that that's smaller under 1200 square feet that you know, people can, can hire an architect for and, and get a taste mm-hmm. of really great design. So, so that's, that's what our practice is. And if, and for your listeners, if they're not familiar with ADUs and mm-hmm. ADU law. So in California in 2017, the state enacted a law that basically it, it takes away single family Mm-hmm. zoning laws and allows any lot in California to be able to build an accessory dwelling unit, which is a 1200 square foot house has to have a kitchen and a, and a bathroom and a bedroom gets its own address up to 1200 square feet. It can be attached to the house. If it's attached to the house then it can't be larger than 50% of the square footage of the house, but you can put it into the garage of a suburban orange County house and, and adapt it that way. It's a real game changer. You know, I think the law was put into effect really with a thought towards um, older folks. I know the AARP mm-hmm. was a, a big advocate of it at the time. Also to address the housing crisis in California. Mm-hmm. You know, a lot of housing was built in the, in, the, in the 40s, 50s, and 60s. But really from 1970 on, it's completely dropped off and so many people are moving to California and there's not housing for them. House prices have risen from that. That's created a whole other different economy, which now kind of incentivizes a constriction on the supply chain. So there, there's, there is a big movement in in California not to build in order to preserve home values. Mm 
you got all these folks that are trying to move in too. It creates a situation that's not ideal. A lot of haves, mm-hmm. a lot of have nots in a land of equality that should get addressed. And so I think Jerry Brown, particularly in 2017 said, okay, folks, you can build this house in a backyard. And what it is, it's interesting is it's a real grassroots approach too. So it mm-hmm. does have a hard time of getting attacked by lobby groups. They don't have like a specific developer to go against, you know? So, you know, of course there should be density built up around transit oriented design and I, every time the state tries to pass a law to allow for more density to occur in those situations, it often gets attacked by local city council groups or other members of, of the caucuses um, within <clears throat> state government. Not just in California, also in New Jersey. I'm a city planning commissioner in Hoboken, and I can tell you all about that one, too. So it's just human nature. I mean, folks are mm-hmm. trying to preserve what they've got and the house is a great place of value. Makes mm-hmm. sense. But sure. the result of it is not not the most inspiring. So this ADU law is a real game changer, though, because it really mm-hmm. deputizes homeowners to build a house for rent, which might affect the housing crisis mm-hmm. you know, or for. Uh, a family member who might be having some mental health issues who really might Mm -hmm. end up being homeless if they don't get a little bit more love and and attention. Or in the, in the case of us, you know, my father was diagnosed with Alzheimer's and we were kind of posited with this impossible situation where he could go into full-time care and we would pay $8,000 a month, or we could try to have him at our house, take care of him, at night when care is expensive and then hire a caregiver in the normal kind of nine to five hours where they could take care of him. We were lucky enough to have enough equity in our house that we were Mm -hmm. able to build an ADU. And so we built an ADU in our yard for about $200,000, which was really inexpensive at the time. And he was able to live in that. Him and my mom were able to be in there for a few years. We were able to take care of him. And it was it was a great solution to a, a horrendous situation. And then, you know, he he moved on. He, he's passed mm-hmm. away now, but we, we rent it. And all throughout the pandemic, we had a, a, a couple there that was incredibly happy to be you know, in a house and not in a small apartment in Los Angeles. And we mm-hmm. have greenery. We live near a park. They were so grateful. And then during the pandemic, they were great neighbors, you know, and we hung out together. They were like our pod, you know, it was like a little sense of community, which is mm-hmm. this thing that the ADU can can create, like get out of this single family dwelling bubble, bring some neighbors in let them live mm-hmm. near you. It, it's a, it was a great thing. And then financially it, it, it changes our situation too, because we have flexibility. Oftentimes a single family dwelling can be a bit, I mean, it can be a real chain around your neck if you get underwater. Exactly. Right. And now this thing that you thought should be an asset is a huge problem. Lessons. Which we're on the doorstep of right now again. Very possibly particularly with inflated values. But mm-hmm. if you have a place to go to, an outlet, like you've got flexibility, that chain's lighter around your neck because mm-hmm. you can move into the smaller ADU and then rent out your house. Or 
or you, maybe you can rent it, the ADU out if you were using it for some other purpose and get some income. So all of a sudden, it allows for some flexibility that can that really can help really middle class dreams come true. And I think that that's mm-hmm. been under a lot of pressure over the last twenty years. And this kind of idea of of what America is and what the opportunities that can happen. So in this process for for SMS for this particular ADU. What would you say were the design influences that you that you took on that were part of your design process? Well, the ADU, it's a small house. It needs all of mm-hmm. these things. Kitchen, bathroom, bedroom, storage. It's only twelve hundred square feet. In the case of SMS, it's even less. It's it's eight hundred square feet. Maybe just mm-hmm. a bit less than eight hundred square feet. It's a small space. And you know, the question for us when we're designing these ADUs is always, well, how do you make a small space feel large, mm-hmm. right? Which is a, a question of, of cognition, right? Of awareness of how you see things and how yeah. you perceive things. Not necessarily and, construction, it's cognition. That makes a lot of sense. Right. And, you know, how we experience space, humans, any any kind of thing, go back to hunter-gatherer times, it's like threat assessment. Like how much room do Mm -hmm. I have to run? Like we're always, we're looking towards the quantity of things. We're looking at the size of things. So when you walk into a room, you look towards the corners, whether you Mm -hmm. are recognizing this or not, you're looking towards where wall meet wall, where wall meets ceiling. You're, You're trying to see what kind of space you're in, right? Maybe you're looking for when I go into a restaurant, I always sit with my, you know, facing the doorway, you know, like. Of course. Yes. Like, you know, he's going to come and attack I'm you. I'm not, but like, you know, I, I want to know. <laughs> the door. So, you know, we're always making these decisions, whether, whether we know it or not. Mm-hmm. That's our perceiving space. But what I also describe is a box. And that is how most houses are built. They're, they're, they're boxes. The, the California mm-hmm. Buffalo is a series of boxes with the rooms being you know, 14 by 14, you know, it's not really a a very wonderful space that we're talking about. And so if you apply that to a smaller house, 800 square feet, it really doesn't work. I mean, I Mm -hmm. think when you apply those rules to a normal house, it's how you end up with McMansions that only feel comfortable when they're 5,000 square feet. The truth is, is is if if you change the nature of how we build these spaces, right? And if you really take a more inside out approach, recast the role of architect as, as someone maybe who starts from the inside looking out, right? Mm-hmm. Well, of course we want a beautiful building, but we, we think about the volume of what we're thinking about. Maybe before we think about the object itself, form follows function. The function here is the volume that we're making and the feeling that you feel when you're in that volume. So how that translates to a small ADU, for instance, is, don't make corners because that's how we read space. Erase corners. Mm-hmm. Try to put a clear story window up against where the ceiling is and where the wall meets. And you see this in some of the great works. You know, Scarpa, Carlos Scarpa does it in, in some of his famous museum in, in Florence. Vaulted ceilings. Don't ever do flat ceilings. Always do vaulted ceilings. You know, just, just ah. give that sense of release so that you, you mm-hmm. don't feel like you're in a box. If this house... The ADU is often in a backyard. If this house is, you know, up against the property line, pull it a little bit off the property line, 10, 15 feet, so that you have a bit of room. And then make huge openings 
to that property line so that the the space that side yard setback space is now a courtyard and it's part of mm-hmm. the living function of of the program house mm. it's an extension to the living room or just have huge windows to a wall that wall is you know can have can be painted it can be have vines on it it can you know receive light in a certain way you can do all kinds of things just break free from this kind of this very cellular arrangement that most mm-hmm. american residential architecture is is built upon so it sounds like a few things that you have at your disposal are layout light light and air and the ability to create these small interesting spaces in and around where you actually lay out the ADO itself. Yes. Yeah. And the more tension that you can bring in, this goes back to the home on a lake fishing Mm -hmm. experience, you know, the more tension that you can create in these relationships, the better, like a a courtyard space tucked up in the corner. It's got your barbecue and your chimney and and those things and super activated. And, you know, it's, it's lit up that that's going to provide a certain sense of life and tension that works or, Mm -hmm. you know, skylights that are oriented towards the sun in a certain way that maybe one room is capturing morning light and another one is capturing Mm. the setting sun in the afternoon. The light is reflecting off a certain color. It opens up, it it creates kind of a, a, pantheon of 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 different experiences throughout the day it's going to make your experience in that space feel brighter because it's just that your experience is changing and adapting as the as the sun moves across so these are these opportunities that you know any architect can do in any space but it's particularly poignant when it's in one of these smaller living units where particularly Mm -hmm. during the pandemic people are not only sleeping there but also living and working all day long People are spending a lot of time in a 700 square foot space. But when you, mm-hmm. when you do these things, it changes how you interact with your space. Interesting. So then while you are uh, considering all of these options, tell us about the typical design process that you have as a firm and how you went about designing this specific project. Well, for this one, you know, we try to have fun in our projects as an architect or any kind of creative individual that blank sheet of paper is a terrifying thing, you know, like mm-hmm. how do you start is. Mm-hmm. And so sitting around thinking about that, it was like, well, the issue here is how do you make something small feel big? Well, are there examples of that? And then mm-hmm. it's like, oh, David Byrne and his like big suit, he's mm-hmm. a skinny guy comes out in that suit, right? He's larger than life. Like he moves, he shakes. All of a sudden his proportions, his dimensions take on this whole other life because of of this separation of suit and body, right? And it's 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 a wonderful thing. So it's like, well, I mean, this is essentially what we're trying to do as as a design firm. How do you translate David Byrne stop making sense into architecture? Mm-hmm. And it was okay. Well, you know, for him, the suit is separate from his body. He's got this armature between him and the jacket. All of a sudden, everything gets loosened up. For a house, you know, it's the relationship between the walls and the ceiling. If we pull the ceiling and the roof 
away from the walls. We wrap everything with the clear story windows, right? All of a sudden you start mm-hmm. to pull this volume apart, this idea of what a home is, you know, it's kind of very housey shape. You start pulling that apart. All of a sudden everything gets looser for things to happen in it. And so that was the starting of this, of this design. And so it was literally mm-hmm. like on one screen, I have two monitors when I work one screen, I'm watching that video play over and over again. And then I'm modeling and sketch up and drawing and trying to like figure this thing out. It's a very fun experience. And I think it, okay. it actually works, you know, without overthinking things too much, if you kind of attack something with a direct intention, it's amazing mm-hmm. that you can actually get it to happen. And so you're, you, you desire for an effect and you do all of this work to try to make that effect happen. And then lo and behold, people are in that space and it happens to them, right? They're like, this can't be 750 square feet. This must be bigger. Like my apartment. Is, is that what people, that's what people would say when they came in? Oh yeah. All the time. My apartment's 700 square feet. There's no way this is 700 square feet. <laughs> and it's like, no, it, it is. And so for listeners who may not be aware, David Byrne uh, is lead singer of the Talking Heads. So feel free to uh, search that and, and see that video. That was Bo's inspiration. What was the name of the song? Stop Making Sense. He did a whole, it's 1984. He did, he's a, a musician. Mm-hmm. He's a performance artist. Ironically, he was a RISD architecture student dropout. Ah. Um, so there's, <laughs> you know, there's that love as well. And um, I mean, a lot of the Talking Heads stories are about houses and urbanism, burning down the house, you know, is one. We haven't quite made that ADU yet, but there there is this kind of tongue-in-cheek interest in in all of these things. And he's serious in it. And then that uh, that performance is quite good. if, If you haven't seen it, dig it up on YouTube. It's good. There it is. I'm going to pause here to let our listeners know about the sponsors of the American Building Podcast. Redist is a technology-enabled company intelligently connecting real estate developers with the $100 billion of public financing that's given out every year in the United States. The company collects, curates, and leverages big data, combining it with the expertise of its in-house team of real estate industry veterans. It has recently joined forces with the New York City Economic Development Corporation, which is one of the largest incentive agencies in the country. Through this relationship, Redist will deepen its value proposition for the small to medium-sized developers it serves in New York and beyond. Find out more at redist.us. Michael Graves Architecture and Design is a full-service design firm based in New Jersey. Founded by Michael Graves, one of the most iconic architects, of the 20th century, it has grown to do work across regions, across asset classes, and across project sizes. That includes everything from the handsome watch I'm wearing right now to the stunning Nile Corniche uh, St. Regis Hotel in Cairo. Learn more about the firm and how it designs at all different scales at michaelgraves.com. So the building industry, unlike, say, automobiles and aviation, has long focused on and celebrated individualization, not standardization. So, I mean, you literally can just look at anyone that's won a Pritzker Prize. So I know you have hot takes on this. So let's go at it, Bo. What are your thoughts? (laughs) 
Well, we, you know, architects do have this uh, desire to make new. Um, of course, it's a profession that's been in operation since, you know, the beginning of time, making mm -hmm. shelter for one another. And we have to follow certain kind of rules of structure and, you know, certain human dimensions, glass and floors and structure, things that we need in order to live in, uh, as well as relationships with different programmings. But we do have this desire to reinvent the wheel every single time that we uh, um, approach a project, which I think is, is great for certain programs that are asking for that. Like, you know, mm -hmm. Frank Gehry's Bilbao Guggenheim, you know, Frank, One -off. Frank White's Guggenheim, you know, institution, institutional work, academic work, competitions, all of this really wonderful but for housing, for instance, we've kind of we have these these designs that are very specific to a certain group of people that can afford it and have the time and mm -hmm. energy to build it. Often they're quite large and actually kind of miscues in other ways, let's say environmental ways or environmental, yep. just kind of, you know, or, you know, taking up a lot of room that more people could could be occupying. And while we're busy as architects kind of doing that, we have developers who are coming in and, and, and really giving us, you know, the, the cookie cutter development, everything's the same. One set of rules learns nothing from what architects have to say. And mm -hmm. yet architects are also learning nothing from what the developers have to say. I think that for the better good of humanity, we could probably find a place in the middle where mm -hmm. architects could, you know, this is something that we try to do is kind of developing rules for how to make smaller spaces feel larger. You know, mm -hmm. everyone out there, please vault your ceilings, um, you know, build clear story windows. Like there's certain kind of rules. I mean, Corbu was right. You know, like he had, he's onto something like there's certain things that you can do that will, will break us free from a lot of these kind of cookie cutter buildings that, that, the massive humanity are living in. And when, when normal folks can experience what a good space feels like, mm -hmm. right. We'll be happier as a people, you know, people will be less more angry, less argumentative. <laughs> exactly. You know, like they will, they'll just be a bit freer. And if you can give people flexibility too in their lives to more easily work from home or, adapt mm -hmm. to financial situations, pandemics or great recessions or loved ones getting sick. I mean, just, just time itself creates a, a change that requires a more adaptive residential mm -hmm. architecture than what the developers or what a lot of architects are providing for normal folks, especially since people now do live in their homes for much longer. That time where you would live in five or six cities over your course of life is, is not our present time. You know, mm -hmm. I think we will probably live in, you know, maybe one or two or three cities in the course of our life. People will stay in their homes longer and they will experience the cycle of life. And so these houses need to be adaptive to it. Mm -hmm. ADU is a great way of doing it, but also as you do these things, architects could, actively engage in this. So like one thing for us, we, we did a, we did a pre-designed ADU where we mm -hmm. basically designed a few different designs. It's not prefab. It's not, 
a kit of parts. I think some of these things are, are, are better studied in school or discussed Mm -hmm. or, or kind of laid out in, on spreadsheets than in, in actuality. I think that, you know, you want to just give people kind of an idea of what the design is because they're not equipped to visualize these things. We are, mm-hmm. and they can see it and they're like, I like that. They can react to it, but you can, so we have these pre-designed options and then we understand we built them. There's an understand cost to those things. And so when people engage with an architect, it's not a huge mystery as to what they're going to get. The cost conversation can be realistic from the start. It's not this mm-hmm mythical thing that keeps changing thereby making the homeowners nervous but we try to kind of meet them halfway through these pre pre-designed options for these ADUs so the idea of prefabrication and uh, some standardization has been around for almost a century like with Jean Prouvé in the 1920s and the idea is that there are certain dynamics at play in our industry in terms of the strength of labor unions, in terms of the relative, relatively low cost of materials and labor versus sister uh, industries, and the incredible cordoning off of entitlements and uh, approvals at uh, the level of city planning commissions, zoning commissions, and city councils at, for example, 554 different municipalities in the state of New Jersey alone. So all of the things that prevented the wholesale acceptance of, of different processes like you talked about. That said, over the past five to 10 years, there's been a mode of uh, innovation in our industry that's tied to venture capital, which itself requires a cordoning off of intellectual property and hockey stick hyper growth at perhaps the expense of actual profitability or sustainability. So what are your thoughts about the sustainability of venture capital driven innovation, say in the design construction part of our industry versus things that might be more altruistic and more humanist? Sure. Well, the kit of parts idea has been out there and I think there are cases where it can work. However, you know, when we experience when we experimented with uh, one of our smaller ADU designs, only 400 square feet, um, has nice vaulted ceilings, skylight in the middle, wraparound clear story windows. Honestly, when you see this thing framed, it looks it feels like being in a hot air balloon. It's it's the most kind of like uplifting kind of gravity defying 400 square feet garage sized ADU mm-hmm. you can think of while you're inside, which, which is the goal. You know, you, you want this feeling to feel like a light tent, right? Because you're going to spend a lot of time in it. But if, if you try to prefab that, you know, no panel can be more than 14 feet long because it has to go underneath a freeway mm-hmm. overpass, right? In, in terms of the access, because it has to go on a truck. It has to go on a truck and that truck has to go on a freeway and it's going to go mm-hmm. underneath an overpass and that is 14 feet. So it just brings in a whole new level of constraints that that I as an architect don't really want to deal with because I feel like we have enough constraints as it is in other ways. Plus, in all of the prefab companies I looked at, the cost per square foot at the end of the day is is not beating like typical type five construction. Mm-hmm. And there is something, you know, the size of a tatami mat, right, in Japan, 
So the size mm-hmm. of a tatami mat is the size of one person sleeping. So if you go into a seven tatami mat room in Japan, technically mm-hmm. it's a house for seven, right? That's that's the ancient way of thinking about things. Same is true for a two by four. A two by four is size where a guy can hold it in one hand and have a nail gun or a hammer in the other and put it into place. Sheet mm-hmm. of drywall, four by eight, same, same thing. So a lot of your type five construction already has been designed as industrial design to Mm -hmm. this scale of, of prefabrication by humans. The day that machines build our houses, it might be a completely different story and maybe we'll Mm -hmm. be there, you know, in our kid's lifetime, but we're not quite there yet. So we've been pushing the kind of pre-design without prefabrication. Mm -hmm. You know, there has been a lot of venture capital, money going into ADUs in California in particular. I think I'm going to create a company called We Home. It will change the world. So when you... I'm looking uh, when for you, a billion dollars, you know. You should call call SoftBank because they're really good at picking winners. They're, yes. they're, definitely, your, they're definitely your VC. <laughs> exactly. You know, I think a lot with a lot of prefab, what's great is, is that you, the nature of prefabricated housing you can itemize the costs. Mm-hmm. You can itemize the costs in terms of factory space, in terms of speed, mechanization, materials, and labor. And all of that stuff outlies onto a spreadsheet that's really great. And people create these performas and get really excited about this kind of growth and that hockey stick projection that you can imagine. But the truth mm-hmm. on the ground is, is that unless you're Eli Brode and you are buying up, you know, thousands of acres and just banging these things out, which mm-hmm. by the way, he's been doing to great financial success. That's uh, his company's KB home. He's KB homes. Yeah. And one of the, yeah. one of the wealthiest men in Los Angeles, but it's, it's been done. So I think that the, the, the dream of the prefabrication looks great on, on spreadsheets, but the mm-hmm. truth of it is, is that unless you, you can actually do it and control it as one individual. When you actually get into discussing things mano a mano with homeowners, you know, soon as as soon as KB Homes sells those homes, there's there's not one owner of this development. There's ten thousand mm. owners, mm-hmm. and now you're dealing with ten thousand different individuals, which is what an ADU homeowner is. You're dealing with one individual with one backyard their home is their castle. They come with a lot of opinions and desires on these things. It is going to be very difficult, I think, for a kind of a venture capital model to fit into this highly personal, highly fragmented, highly fragmented environment with layers and layers and layers of government oversight, Mm -hmm. both from the construction standpoint and the building departments, not to mention the planning and zoning constraints all the different overlays that occur in different neighborhoods, it's very difficult. And so I think that the advantage of it is, is that it is fragmented. I think this is how mm-hmm. we actually are ending up with density in cities where there has been a push by the homeowning populace to sometimes prevent it. This is mm-hmm. how you can get density is through this kind of grassroots. And so that's why we as a small company are fully embracing it. I think we're embracing an environment that a lot of architects shy away from. The laws are changing rapidly. A lot of architects like to sit on the sidelines and kind of wait for the dust to settle. 
you know, what we're finding is, is that we're kind of right there and with the developers who are seeing a law change and then being like, oh, wow, this law changed. What does that mean for the urban fabric within the city? This is going mm-hmm. to have dramatic repercussions. Mm-hmm. Our built environment looks the way it does because of taxes and zoning laws, not because of architects. Sorry. Sorry. I mean, if you go to London, storefronts are very narrow. Buildings are really deep because back in the 1500s, they were taxed based upon their storefrontage. And so they created very narrow lots. They didn't want to get taxed. Same is true for Ho Chi Minh City in Vietnam. Same for Kyoto. You know, Los Angeles looks the way it does because of zoning, tax reasons. And, and the, the U.S. Highway Act. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And carving up neighborhoods at an urban scale, for sure. So I say as architects, we should be engaging how things really happen. Mm-hmm. The economies that affect people's lives, how people live their lives how they live it through time, how their life changes in terms of their needs and act kind of immediately, right? Like when these things happen and not sit on the sidelines. I think that goes for younger architects too, coming out of school, go to a big office, get experience. That's great. Boutique office. That's fine. But you can also Mm -hmm. cut your teeth on small residential projects. It's, it's, you know, that the client will tell you whether they like it or not. And there's a very good chance that it's going to be better and you know, more uplifting and more intelligent than and then a lot of the kind of cookie cutter stuff that we're living in. You could also skip college altogether and just start designing homes and making a startup with uh, Peter Thiel's uh, fellowship for people that just don't go to college. I mean, you might be saying that in jest, but actually the savviest developers I ever met bought homes at 18 and never went yep. to college. Mm-hmm. And they are the smartest ones because when they walk down the street, they have this intuited way of mm-hmm. seeing the street, seeing the hole that exists in that street, whether maybe it's a physical hole, it's a vacant lot, mm-hmm. or it's an underutilized lot, and they know the program that goes into it. Mm-hmm. But they, they have a sense of the streets that I think that, that architects and urban planners could really get used to. I, I think Jane Jacobs probably learned more from the streets than she did in school. Mm-hmm. I don't know. And I can't ask her, but there's a lot to be said <laughs> with, with, with hands-on application of things. I think she probably, she could handle herself on the street. I think she could be, be just fine. The, uh, so one of the things that you mentioned, uh, we talked about is 3D printing. So 3D printing homes is a thing if you, if listeners are not aware, uh, and the modes of doing that is a uh, liquid concrete. And the extreme challenge in this industry is how do you produce nozzles and equipment that don't break apart over a short amount of time because of the incredibly the weight of liquid concrete and also all of the the, the chemicals that are part of that process uh, corroding the inside of any such infrastructure? That's a big problem. Another problem is uh, the ability to actually scale it and let the uh, let that become something that's repeatable many 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 times over. So. One such company that I've met uh, raised uh, two rounds of financing recently, so a total of $385 million. And assuming the average cost of a 1,000-square-foot home, which is still a very generous size, 1,000-square-foot home in the United States is 125000 they could have built almost 
or their investors could have built uh, around 3,100 homes for that amount of money, which is say a house of four. Now you're saying you could have housed 12, 13, maybe 14,000 people uh, for that same amount of money. What are your feelings about this mode of the goopy concrete building in, in layers and layers and layers? Is this a thing? Is everyone going to be living in concrete homes soon? Not in Los Angeles. Because of seismic requirements? No, probably just access of concrete and, and things mm-hmm. like that. I mean, I think in different cultures where there's more concrete than wood, I think that that's probably a mm-hmm. wonderful opportunity to do it. I think that those building technologies are really exciting. You know, the, the fewer trades that you get on a site, mm-hmm. you know, the, the less expensive the construction will be. You know, I think you mentioned maybe one of those issues is that, you know, the developer could build 31,000 units. I mean, that's the KB Homes, Eli Broad approach to things mm-hmm. like that. You have one thinking entity designing for many is great unless that thinking entity, you know, cuts corners, makes for crummy spaces, you know. <laughs> not enough light, not enough clerestory windows. Right, right. You know, it doesn't allow for enough chance or serendipity for kind of life to get in. So you get, you know, projects essentially or really cookie cutter stuff done. The, the problem with that top down approach is, is that it doesn't let the life kind of seep back on in and concrete, of course, has an even more difficult time to be adapted than stick frame. But certainly, well, concrete manufacturing is actually really difficult on the environment. But mm-hmm. I mean, all of these things need to be kind of like played in their pros and cons to kind of think about that from an environmental standpoint. But, you know, the, the most climate conscious move that you can do is to kind of you know, keep adapting what you have to make it more and more efficient, you know, stay with the times, but then also not feel like you need to tear the thing down every 10 years in order to start over, you know? Mm-hmm. So, you know, you make do with what you have, you adapt it over time. You allow for a flexible construction type that allows for that. I think it's going to be something, something in there. Yeah. The financials of that, I think are great because they, they, you know, they, they understand the time it takes to print a house. You know, they, they know that they can print, you know, you know, one house takes two nozzles and, you know, you know, they, they can map all of that. It's very understood. They feel like the risks are all mitigated mm-hmm. from a financial standpoint, but I think that the real risks are the, the ones that, you know, Pruitt ego ex- experienced with housing projects in the, in the, in Chicago in the seventies. And then you build this thing with these certain kind of intentions and it works for a time, but through its lack of adaptability, mm-hmm. lack of sense of humanity, time isn't, isn't kind to these things. Correct. And I think there's also this idea of this slippery slope that 3d printing can go down, which is to say that it becomes an art piece and it's uh, this idea of how beautiful, how unusual, how unique can my 3D printing house is. And before you know it, it's on the cover of Dwell magazine and it's being furnished by Design Within Reach. And then, you know, yeah. like it's all over after that, all over. <laughs> well, that, that kind of fluidity like creates a certain kind of aesthetic that's attached to mm-hmm. it. I mean, we've been, I mean, history repeats itself. I mean, is, is Zaha not? Art Nouveau, you know, and then mm-hmm. after Art Nouveau, who did we have? We had Corbusier and his Machines for Living, and you know, 
Los and all of these guys. Ornament is crime. You know, we, we constantly go back and forth. I mean, I'm interested to seeing if, you know, Christopher Alexander is kind of embraced more in these next few years after being kind of out of fashion all through, mm-hmm. you know, the 90s and, and early aughts. You know, if this kind of more program oriented site specific contextualization is something that we that, that we want to pursue within mm-hmm. academic discourse, I, I hope I hope so. You know. So, Bo, I'm curious. You're a millennial like me, and for many of our age cohort, the frames of reference of our, of our adult life are epic booms and busts. So, uh, we started with I think started college with the dot com bubble. Uh, our working uh, working experience or working career uh, was bookended on one side by the global financial crisis. And now, as many of us are entering the prime earning parts of our life, it's the, the COVID debacle. And I think anyone with uh, some sense of sense can see that there is another crash that's afoot. I think uh, the past six weeks have been the worst for Apple and Amazon stock in the history of both businesses. And uh, we are probably on the doorstep of, I'm going to call it, the iBuyer bubble uh, in terms of investors buying up single family homes. So mm. what is your take on where our industry should go from these uh, these kind of experiences that have huge impacts uh, on our industry and particularly uh, residential homes? What do you think a way forward is for, for our industry through these collapses and the next ones to come? Well, I mean, right now the stock market is is going through a really difficult period and it's lost, I don't know, what, 15, 20% in the last three months or something like that. I, I don't know. I took you know, all but, my money. All my money is now in treasuries again. I did it. It's all over. Well, you know. <laughs> no, more, for, no more Coinbase stock. We're done with Coinbase. <laughs> for, you know, for those people that are looking at their retirement and needing to pull that money out now, it's a complete disaster. Mm-hmm. So for one group of people, it's a disaster. For another group of people who have been sitting on cash, cash that they have been accumulating all during the pandemic, you know, possibly fortified through PPP loans and mm-hmm. kind of other government machinations over the last two years, are now buying it because it's inexpensive. My point is, is that it's 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 terrible for one group of people and it's great for another group of people. And that mm-hmm. relationship just flips back and forth. That's how I feel. And so I feel like the American system right now is actually built towards instability. I think it's hard baked mm-hmm. into the capitalist system. You know, it's you make money not not by it going up. You you make money just through change. Mm-hmm. All things need to do is change. The worst thing that could happen for the American psyche is for things to stay the same. <laughs> you know, it's probably why we why we you know, elect a Democrat and then a Republican and a Democrat and Republican. Like it, we, we are in love with this change. We like this. Mm-hmm. And so the booms and busts, I think are a more modern phenomenon, maybe happening faster because mm-hmm. of social media and because of just the way that things are and speed of life, mm-hmm. but, but they're hard baked into the system. And so I think as a, as architects and as planners and as thinkers, because actually people don't think like we do, right? 
We think differently. We, we our, our, our schooling or just the way that we look to things is, is different. It's, it's, it's over a longer period of time. It's, it's a little bit more trajectory to it, or it's a little bit more opportunistic. Like those developers mm-hmm. I was talking about that hole in the street, mm-hmm. it's flexible like that. And what, what we need to do as planners is just allow everybody to be like that, you know, so that they can handle these booms and busts. Like I also am getting older, you know, and, and like that time of thinking it's like everything's going to work exactly how it does. Mm-hmm. Actually age presents this thing where it's like, actually it doesn't, things don't stay the same. Everything mm-hmm. is always changing. And so whether it's changing to your benefit or whether it's changing to your de- detriment, the only thing that really matters is that things are changing. And so you want mm-hmm. to create a built environment that adapts to change, which mm-hmm. Which is why I like this kind of grassroots ADU approach, you know, like one, create flexibility in something that's pretty inflexible, single family house. Mm-hmm. Hey, create flexibility in something that's inflexible, like offices in the workplace mm-hmm. environment, right? The list goes on and on and on that flexibility is going to create change on its own. It, mm-hmm. it, some people are going to think it's great. Other people is going to think it's terrible. Certainly information, disinformation, all of that is part mm-hmm. of this thing. I think community, actually physical community, creating mm-hmm. our built environment for, to allow people to be flexible, but within a community is mm-hmm. really great. You know, get people again. I think, I think that the, Making dense and making more flexible the single family, these kind of like little enclaves that we that we live in, right? That we mm-hmm. that we don't let people in to, you know, that are kind of a bit opaque. I think the more that we break that open and let life occur, every house is a little city, right? And we we let all of that happen. We all socialize more. I think that will that will be great. So, uh, listeners, you heard it here from architect Bo Sundius. The way forward for our country is through ADUs. So find one, build one, get one in your backyard, do it, rent one, whatever you can, get an ADU. I mean, it's true, but I mean, the ADU too is incredibly limiting. I mean, caveat, like that requires you to own a home, which is increasingly impossible and completely off the charts for so many people. Like the ADU is this suggestion is only working for a really narrow demographic that's incredibly Mm -hmm. lucky, possibly entitled, you know, and has probably a huge amount of history helping it. Mm -hmm. I can only hope that these folks that have these opportunities can actually allow it to happen for other people. Maybe government Mm -hmm. can actually kind of create these kind of open playgrounds for people to develop. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Maybe there's a way of making them vertically or even more dense than they are right now. But the ADU is a great thing for what it for what it is, but it's not going to mm-hmm. solve the housing crisis. But I do hope that the people that get to live in well-designed ones, you know, it's a bit of a, a game changer in terms of understanding how how to live in space. It's a bit different than what they're used to. Mm-hmm. Maybe living with a little bit less space, living with a little bit less stuff living in a denser environment, being able to walk to places, creating flexibility for family members, multi-generational living. I mean, that, it, that it's illegal in a single family house to, to have two kitchens is just, it's just nuts. Like how do we care for our adults? If, mm-hmm. you know, if, if only one kitchen's allowed now you create two kitchens and now you, you will feel you, it'll be okay to let 
your mother-in-law live with you because she's mm-hmm. not cooking with you. You know what I mean? It's, it's a big, it's a big difference. And it, it's these kind of smaller steps that hopefully will make us a, a more communal and, and, you know, flexible culture. So on that note, thank you so much for joining us today on the American Building Podcast, Bo. Thank you very much for having me. Hopefully that was a great conversation for all of your listeners, a little bit, a little bit everywhere. But if you want to see our work, you know, check it out on, on our website. Absolutely. We'll share links for all of that with the show notes. So listeners, if you want to hear the behind the scenes stories of how iconic buildings in our country were designed and built, subscribe to this podcast on Spotify, iTunes, Google, Anchor, Stitcher, or wherever you like to listen. Rate and review us on iTunes to help us reach a wider audience and follow us on Instagram at American Building Podcast. We all know real estate is a tough industry to make it. So how can professionals stand out and make a name for themselves in today's world? Hear from me, the team of Michael Graves and Reedist, and many of our spectacular guests like Bo on what we did to make it where we are. Grab our exclusive guide, seven tips on how to stand out in your field at AmericanBuildingPodcast.com. Finally, we live in the richest country in the history of humankind. We must reach out beyond the boundaries that we see and the boundaries that we create in order to help build homes and communities. Today, Bo and I have made donations to the Alzheimer's Foundation, which advocates for the priorities for those with this condition. I encourage you, our listeners, to support their worthwhile work as well. My name is Atif Kader, and this has been American Building.